Lord, as um, Paul prayed for the Ephesians, Lord, I pray that we would have eyes, the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we may all know what is the hope to which you've called us. What are the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints? Amen. So the passage today is from Luke chapter 21, verse 20 through 28. If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn there. Otherwise, it will be up on the screen. Yeah. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city. Because these are the days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and in those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth dismay among the nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. Men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when those things begin to take place, straighten up, lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Morning, church. I remember close to the beginning of COVID, one of the thoughts I had was, Man, this whole thing seems like it's blown out of proportion. It feels like it's exaggerated. And I read some news stories that talked about people losing their sense of smell and not coming back or having some sort of like cognitive effects that stuck around for a long time and maybe didn't go away. And I remember thinking, actually, I really don't want to get this. Around that springtime, I went shopping at a Target, spring of 2020, and I was walking towards the store, and a man approached me and asked me for help. Now, he was a bigger guy, so his face was right as high as mine is, and he doesn't have the same personal space bubble as I do, so he was right, right here, and I remember I could feel his hot breath on my face. And I remember thinking, well, I have COVID now. <laughs> and the next few mornings, I would wake up, and I would find something that smells strongly, and I would sniff it to see, have I lost it yet? Is it gone? Right? Fear had started to influence how I behaved. And I remember in that conversation with that man, I actually wanted to turn away from him and walk away from him out of fear rather than talk with him. Now, by God's grace, I didn't treat him that way. I was able to engage with him and treat him respectfully. But in that moment, fear made me want to turn away from him and ignore him rather than engage with him. And I think there's a dozen ways that fear about different things 
are influencing the way we live today. Whether that's our pandemic habits, our news and media habits, or any sort of different ways, fear is influencing how we behave. And the question I want us to ask this morning is how do we respond to the fear in our lives and the way that it's influencing us? Another way to ask that is how do we respond to the inevitable chaos and destruction in the world as Jesus comes nearer and nearer to returning? That's what Jesus is addressing this morning in our text. Let's, let's take a look at it. If you remember last week, Pastor Daniel preached the first part of this text. Jesus is talking about the end of the world. He's talking about when he comes back. He's talking about when he sets up his kingdom. And it's a little tough to follow because he's also talking about when Jerusalem is destroyed in 70 A.D., so Jesus is ministering a few years before Jerusalem is destroyed. He's looking forward to the destruction of that city in a few years. And then he's also talking about when he comes back at the end of the age. Now why, why is he talking about both of them? Because he sees the destruction of Jerusalem and of that city as a picture and a foretaste of judgment at the end of time. So he's saying, this city is about to be destroyed and this is a picture of the chaos and calamity at the end of the age. So does that make sense how those, those things are connected to each other? So you're going to hear Jesus in this text talking about Jerusalem getting destroyed. And you're going to hear about him coming back, which actually don't happen at the same time. But they're related because one is a picture of the other. So that, that's why these different things are weaved together in this text. Okay, let's take a look at verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. The picture Jesus is painting here would have been the worst case scenario for a first century Jew. Right? Jerusalem was the city that God would put his king over that city. He would extend his kingdom to the other nations. And he began to remove sin and suffering and death from the world through his kingdom spreading. Now, the exact opposite of that happens. The people sin against God repeatedly. They refuse to do his will. And as a result, rather than his kingdom spreading to the nations and rescuing them, we see the nations surrounding Jerusalem. For an American, this would be like armies surrounding the White House from other nations. This would be the worst case scenario. The word Jesus uses is desolation. It's desolation is drawn near. It's a word that means devastation. So the city is about to be overthrown and crushed to the ground and most of the inhabitants will be killed. That's the picture that Jesus is painting. And he's right. A few decades after he speaks these words, Roman armies come and they unleash devastation and destruction on the city of Jerusalem. 
The city that was designed to be the hope of the world becomes destroyed because of the sin and rebellion of the people. Church, this is a warning to us this morning that sin ruins and destroys everything it touches. There's nothing more devastating in the world than rejecting Jesus. Sin might promise life. It might feel like it's giving you life. Having an affair might feel like it's going to bring life. Taking some money, embezzling some money from your company might feel like it's going to bring life. This is a picture that living in opposition to Jesus only brings death. Only brings death. It cannot bring life. Jesus is warning and he's painting a picture of what sin and opposition to him looks like. He's going to keep talking about this. He says, Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are in the country enter it. Jerusalem was a fortress city. It was supposed to be a safe place where you could go for protection in a time of battle. And because of the rejection of Jesus, because of the refusal to love Jesus, it becomes the place of destruction and death and danger. And the text, Jesus actually warns that the people who live there will have to flee out of it. Church, there is no safer place to live than in the will of Jesus. No safer place than the will of Jesus. And no more dangerous place to live than outside of the way of Jesus. It's the most dangerous place to live in the world. Because one day he's coming back and there will be justice. And just as there was justice for Jerusalem, there will be justice for every person who has ever lived. There's no safer place to be than in the will of God, and there's no more dangerous place to be than to reject Jesus. And then Jesus says, For those are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. So Jesus is very clear. When Roman armies show up to destroy the city of Jerusalem, it's not an accident. It's not the Roman armies just doing what the Roman armies want to do. It is our God executing vengeance for sin and rebellion against him. We have to read this book. We have to be honest about this, what this book says. And this book says that God punishes sin with vengeance. Now, I want us to make sure that we define that word rightly. Because a lot of us, when we hear vengeance, think about what we hear in popular media, which is someone with uncontrollable rage just going and beating people up and killing them and hurting them uncontrollably. That is not what is being depicted here. The word vengeance, it refers to a full satisfaction and a full and righteous justice. So instead, think of a judge with a criminal who has committed an atrocity 
and the judge fully executing the law rightly to punish that person. In the case of Jerusalem, God was patient and withheld his vengeance for generation and generation. They committed sexual immorality, idolatry, and ultimately now when Jesus arrives at the city, they reject Jesus as their ultimate sin. So this is the righteous judgment of our God against sin. We worship a holy God who punishes sin. And though he's patient, though right now you might be able to live in your sin, though right now it might not feel like the vengeance of God is coming, I've been asked to preach this text, and this text is a reminder to us that the vengeance of God is coming against sin. And we must not forget that. Our God wants to humble us by reminding of us of how severe, how weighty, how incredible are the consequences of our sin against our holy God. He is a God who brings full justice and full satisfaction against those who sin against him. And then at this point, we see the first ray of good news in this text. The first ray of good news in this text. By the end of this text, we're going to see how good our God is in the face of vengeance and judgment for sin. And here's the first ray of goodness in this text. Jesus says that these are the days of vengeance in order to do what? To fulfill all that is written. That means that our God has a plan. Our God has a plan. And my own sin that brings devastation to my life and other people's sin that brings devastation to my life does not thwart that plan. Even the sin in your life and the sins in other people's lives that are bringing chaos and destruction to your life right now does not thwart God's plan. Even as Jesus is in Jerusalem declaring that Jerusalem is about to be destroyed, He's preparing to die for the sins of anyone who will come to him. There's a way out of the destruction Jesus is talking about. The destruction is a part of his plan, and even more than that, the life that he offers is a part of his plan. The way to flee from the vengeance in this passage, that this passage is talking about, is to flee to Jesus. Jesus is the safe place. Jesus is the refuge. Jesus is the place we can go to not experience any of the vengeance or the wrath that we rightly deserve. How kind is our God to come up with a plan that includes salvation and rescue from vengeance for anyone who comes to him? That means this morning, if you're sitting here and you're afraid of where you'll spend eternity and you're afraid of this vengeance that this passage is talking about, there's a safe place for you. And you don't have to leave with a sense of this vengeance hanging over your head at all. 
And all I ask you to do is just talk to another Christian in this room and ask them, how can I know this Jesus to be freed and safe from the vengeance of God? Thank you, God. Now, Jesus is going to go, keep going on, and he's going to describe the sorrow of the consequences of the people's sin. So God, it isn't just anger towards sin, which is right and just when it's from God, but there's also an incredible tragedy when our sin plunges ourselves and other people into ruin. Here's what he says in verse 23. Alas, that means how sad, how awful, how terrible. Alas, alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress, great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. So again, Jesus is talking about the results of the people's sin, the Roman war against Jerusalem, and the distress that women who are pregnant, especially, and women with new babies will experience, we get a picture here of the most vulnerable and the most needy being crushed. Sin is awful. Sin is ugly. Sin is more disgusting than any of us ever thought it was. And it's something that's tough for me to see. It's tough for me to see how weighty my own sin is. It's tough for me to see how much I've offended a holy God. And I want to know it more so I can run to Jesus more. I want you to know it more so you can run to Jesus more. It's a tough thing to come to honesty, to come to grips with who we are in our sinful flesh, but it's a good thing. It's a good thing to be honest about who we are so we can be most honest about who Jesus is and respond to him rightly. These are loving words from Jesus meant to inform people about what the reality of their situation is so that they can respond rightly. So if you're tuning out right now and you're saying, I don't want to hear this guy talk about my sin. I don't want to hear this guy talk about judgment. I don't want to hear him talk about these unpleasant things. I just plead with you, just listen. Listen so you can turn from it and have life. No one has to perish. No one has to perish because of what Jesus has done and who he is. Jesus goes on. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So Jesus keeps talking about the same topic. The edge of the sword falls against Jerusalem. There were thousands and thousands of people who died. There were mothers who died. There were infants who died. This is an ugly, ugly event in history. And Jerusalem, the kingdom of Jerusalem, has not been rebuilt to this day in the same way it was up until that point. That's what this verse says. For Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Since 70 AD, we've been in a new era of history. It's an era where God's kingdom doesn't exist in the world like it did in the time of Israel. It's a time where wicked nations seem to be in charge of the world. Wicked nations like Vladimir Putin 
and other wicked rulers that we've seen bring devastation and chaos to the world. This is the times of the Gentiles that we live in right now as we wait for Jesus to come back. It's a result of my sin. It's a result of all of our sin. So Jesus is setting expectations for what they will be like until he comes back. He's trying to prepare us to be ready when he comes back, to be ready to meet him, and to do so, he's informing us of what this age will be like until he comes back again and how to avoid final judgment when he returns. So that's what he's going to launch into right now in verses 25 and 26. A description of the age of the Gentiles, which is the age of when Jerusalem was destroyed until Jesus comes back. Does that make sense to everyone? We're living in between two times right now, between the first and second coming of Christ. And he's trying to get us to understand what this time will be like so we can live wisely and lovingly and faithfully in our lives. He says, And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars. And on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Would you agree with me that that's a mysterious verse? That's a tough one. That's a really tough one. And, and that's okay. Some of the Bible is really difficult to understand. You don't have to understand it all. Pastors don't understand it all. Could be two possibilities that I can think of that this is referring to. One is that there's going to be astrological phenomena and ecological catastrophes that point to chaos and are ominous and are foreboding and destructive, like maybe something falling out of the sky or oceans rising up and flooding nations. It could be that. It could be that there's astrological and ecological things bringing ruin and destruction on the world. There's another option, and I tend to lean in this direction, that Jesus is speaking symbolically of chaos and destruction and evil in the natural world and the spiritual world. Jesus is speaking of evil and destruction in the natural world and the spiritual world. Right, this imagery brings us all the way back to Genesis 1, where God establishes order in the heavens and order on the earth. He separates the water from the land. He fixes the stars in the sky. He creates a world of peace, right? a, peace, a world of peace and harmony. And the picture Jesus is painting is that this peace and harmony is falling apart. It's falling apart in the heavens. It's falling apart on the earth. There's chaos in our natural lives, in our bodies, and in our relationships, and there's chaos in the spiritual world that's influencing our natural world. I think that's what he might be getting at with pointing to chaos in the heavens and chaos on the earth. Destruction and evil and wickedness in the spiritual world and the natural world. Does that make sense? Chaos in both worlds, destruction in both worlds. That's what Jesus seems to be setting up here as he describes this situation. Which means that the presence of war in Ukraine, the prevalence of the pornography and abortion industries, COVID, your own struggles with anxiety and depression, 
are a result of a fallen natural world and a fallen spiritual world. That these things come from sin in our bodies and sin in our natures and also evil spiritual beings influencing our world. Who here agrees with me that it seems like behind these different evils that I mentioned, there is almost certainly evil spiritual beings waging war against this world? I think Jesus is talking about this in creative ways. So the good news is, as we experience the fallenness of this life, as we experience the fallenness in our bodies, as we experience the fallenness in our societies, these are things that have not caught Jesus off guard at all. He's not like, whoa, what happened? He knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew exactly what was going to happen to you last week. He knew exactly what was going to happen to you last night. And if there's one theme that I think keeps tying this text together is that he has a plan. So if your life is spinning out of control right now and there's chaos and pain in your life, I'm here to remind you this morning that our God has a plan. And if you trust him, he will help you. There's nothing that gets out of his control. The world never gets out of his control. And your life never gets out of his control. The reason he's able to speak about these things before they happen and talk about what will happen is because he's in control of what happens. It's what this text is showing us. He's in control of what happens. He's in control of all of the different pain and wickedness that we're feeling through the world. So if that's the case, then we get down to how do we respond to these things? Right? How are we going to respond? That's, that's actually where Jesus is going in this text. He talks about all the incredible things that are happening in the world, but where he focuses and ends is how are you responding? How are you living? How are you reacting to these different things that are happening in the world? This cosmic text ends getting close to home. It's going to ask us, how are you living in light of these realities? So let's take a look at response one. We see it in verses 25 and 26. On the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. The way the world and we are inclined to respond is with chaos, sorry, is with confusion and fear. I can't think of two better words to describe the cultural moment we live in than confusion and fear. Seems to be what is in the air right now, confusion and fear. So I just want to ask us some questions to see if we're imbibing this confusion and fear that Jesus is talking about, if this is what's coming out of our hearts. Has COVID created a sense of fear or confusion in you? Has police brutality, riots, and political unrest in our city created a sense of fear or confusion in you? Does illness in yourself or a loved one 
or depression or anxiety disorders create a sense of fear or confusion in you. Chaos in our bodies, our relationships, and the world provoke fear and confusion. Now, I want to be very clear about something. Every one of us are going to feel fear and confusion. That's natural. I feel fear and confusion. And if you feel fear and confusion, you should not be ashamed in the least. Not at all. What's at stake is whether or not fear and confusion controls us and influences us on how we make decisions and how we live in day-to-day life. Let me say that again. What's at stake is not whether you feel fear and confusion, but whether fear or confusion influences and controls the decisions you make. This is exactly what Jesus is talking about, right? He says there's going to be people fainting with fear and with foreboding. He's describing someone who's overcome with fear and confusion, and fear and confusion is influencing their life decisions more than the Lord. I'm going to ask some more questions. Does fear dominate your thoughts or your life choices? Do you have an anxious demeanor? This would be myself, right? This is what one battle I would describe myself as having. An anxious demeanor where it sometimes feels like I'm not present with you. It feels like my mind is elsewhere in a conversation that we're having. Why? Because I'm scared about something. And my mind is dragged away from the task the Lord has called me to right in front of my face. It would be a response of fear or confusion. So maybe you are like me. Do you avoid people? I think this is the big one. This is the big one in our cultural moment that the fear and confusion looks like in day-to-day life. So ask yourself this. Do you avoid people because of fear of illness, social anxiety, or the inevitable cost of relationships? Let me ask that again. Do you avoid people because of fear of illness, social anxiety, or the inevitable cost of relationships. Right now, the world's response to fear and confusion is to find a bunker. Whether that's your apartment or your house, to turn your life into a remote way of relating to the world and an avoidance of those who are around you. And it can create a feeling of safety, a feeling of control, and a feeling of comfort. But this is not the way of Jesus. And though the world lives this way, and though the world is influencing us to live this way, this is not the way we've been called to live. So that's one response. Fear and confusion. Now Jesus is going to talk about another response that he wants us to have. And he's going to start out by describing a reality that should create that response. So let's take a look at a reality we need to be aware of in order to create a different response than fear or confusion. Verse 27. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. 
Church, there's going to be a moment where the things that feel so frightening right now and so worthy of our attention will feel completely insignificant. And something else is going to grab our attention. There will be a man descending from the sky and all the world is going to stop what they're doing and look at him. He's going to shine with beauty and with power and it will be clear that he is coming back to reign. And all of his enemies will flee from him and he will rule forever. And he will slay sin and death and suffering and fear and chaos. And none of those things that we fear today will be in his world when he returns. There's going to be a moment when in an instant, suddenly everything changes and Jesus comes back. And we who know that get to have a different response to the things that the world faces. He will, no one will ever be more glorious, more wonderful, or more authoritative than this Jesus. And when he returns, some of us here in this room will rejoice more than we've ever rejoiced. More than we've ever rejoiced when he returns. You'll finally see the one that you've been waiting for. You'll finally see the one that this world has not filled you up. And he's the one who fills you up and he'll come back. And there's some of us who will never be so terrified as at that moment when Jesus comes back. And it doesn't have to be that way. Anyone who repents and trusts Jesus now will rejoice when he comes back. And my heart's longing and my heart's desire is that every single one of us will be happier than ever when Jesus comes back. So I plead with you once again, if you're walking in sin right now, if you're walking in opposition to Jesus right now, cut it off. Cut it off and come to him. If you're refusing to trust Jesus right now, come to him, trust him. He's inviting you. Every time you hear the word preached, he's inviting you to come to him so you can rejoice with us when he comes back and rules and changes this world. Man, we want that for you. So much, more than anything, I want to see more people happy when Jesus comes back to rule the world. Now, Jesus coming back at the end of time, at the end of all things, shapes how we live today. So if you know this, if you are aware of this, if you believe this, there's going to be a different way you respond to events and different ways you live in day-to-day -day life. This is Jesus saying this, not me. So, so what he says in verse 28. Now when these things begin to take place, right, the shaking, the chaos, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads. Because your redemption is drawing near. Wow. When you're not a follower of Jesus and things start to fall apart, your plan starts to fall apart. That's what creates the fear and confusion is the sense that the plan is falling apart. 
when you're a follower of Jesus and you experience the brokenness in this world, you're just one day closer to seeing Jesus face to face. We're just one day closer to seeing Jesus face to face. When this day ends, we'll be one step closer to being with Jesus forever. Our redemption is drawing near. When the world is falling apart, the world panics. When the world is falling apart, we Christians recognize the plan of God is coming to pass and Jesus is coming back. And so we don't panic. The opposite response is instead of fear, we straighten up our heads. Look straight ahead. Look outward towards others. Look outward towards what God is doing in the world and doing in our lives. We have a sense of peace that our God reigns and he's in control. He wants other people, when they interact with us, to have a sense that we have a peace. A peace about us that goes beyond our present circumstances. That goes beyond what our present circumstances can describe. Someone were to ask you, Ross, how can you have such peace as the world is falling apart? May my answer be, because it only means Jesus is closer to coming back. And you can have that kind of peace too, that there's a God with a plan, and that plan ends with Jesus coming back and rescuing all of his people. Did you know that it's possible for us to be rescued from confusion and fear? We don't have to have anxious lifestyles. And I know that's easier said than done. I have an anxious lifestyle, and according to this passage, I don't have to have one. That doesn't happen overnight. It's not a light switch that turns on. I don't just suddenly decide not to be anxious as if it was that easy. But by a long meditation in my life, day in and day out, on the reality that Jesus is coming back, I can be progressively set free from fear. Church, if we meditate on the things the world meditates on, we will be fearful people. If we spend more time on the internet than we do in prayer and reading the word, we will be fearful people. The way to be set free from fear is to meditate more on Jesus coming back than the chaos in the world. So if there's one call for us this morning, one action step to take, one thing I want to invite us to do together is to think daily that Jesus is coming back. And think about that more than we think about the problems in our lives. And pray about that and, and seek God in his word and ask him to make that more real than ever to us. So we can be a church who's more free than ever from a lifestyle of fear and confusion. And instead we have a lifestyle of peace and comfort. Something we've been talking about this morning is how suffering, confusion, brokenness in the world does not mean the plan of God has been undermined. It doesn't. The, those things are actually part of God's plan as he brings his plan to fulfillment and destroys those things forever. 
Never was that more clear ever in the history of the world. Never was this more clear than at the moment Jesus died on the cross. Never was it more clear that suffering does not undermine the plan of God. God overcomes it and it's a part of his plan and he destroys suffering. So I want to read to you Acts chapter 2 verse 23. This is the Apostle Peter speaking. He says, Jesus, listen to this, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Church, was there ever a greater moment of chaos and evil in the world than when people crucified Jesus? Was there ever a moment that would have felt more discouraging, more frightening, more humiliating to be a follower of Jesus than when Jesus was stripped naked and hanging on the cross? And there, was there ever a moment where God was accomplishing more good to us by dying on the cross? Our response to evil and suffering should not be our God has failed. It should be, I'm looking forward to God doing away with this because he's already succeeded in Jesus. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for the victory you won for us. And thank you that you're coming back. Oh, we want you to come back. Even today, Lord, come back. And in the meantime, God, I pray that each one of us would be able to straighten up our heads and live with courage in this world and live with a sense of peace and trust that you've got this. Oh, I want us to be a people who's assured in you and who's resting in you and who has a sense of peace that draws our neighbors to want to worship our God. So please, God, come and give us peace right now as we turn to you in reflection and worship and prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to invite you guys to a time of prayer and reflection. Just ask, where is the greatest stronghold fear as in my life? What is the greatest way that fear is influencing me to live? And what would it look like for me to live differently with trust in Jesus? And pray that God will help you get there by reflecting on his return.